Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. welcoming my friend, Dr. Sara Nasrzadeh on the show today, who is always such a pleasure to be with and to think with. She and I met a few years ago when we were both on faculty at Esther Perel's annual Sessions Live conference, and we hit it off immediately. Dr. Sara has an extensive list of accomplishments and leadership positions, many of which have a global reach. She's a social psychologist in the fields of couples counseling, cross-cultural fluency, diversity, and inclusion. She is a speaker, author, and has served as a senior cultural advisor and strategic consultant for governments, international NGOs, United Nations affiliated agencies, Fortune 500 companies, academic institutions, and professional organizations. Dr. Sara has been featured by outlets like the BBC, CNN, and NPR. And currently, she serves at the Religion and Sexual and Reproductive Health Rights Task Force of the United Nations Population Fund and the Advisory Board of the World Association for Sexual Health. I can't wait for you to hear about the exciting projects she currently has in the works at the end of our episode. So Dr. Sara and I tackle a question today that I know is going to resonate with many of our listeners. Our question comes from a woman who is seeking a long-term partner. She's out there in the dating world, and she's trying to balance feedback from so many sources at once. Experts in the field, advice from family and friends, her surface-level assessments of a potential partner, and her deeper bodily responses. When there's so much noise in dating, how do you make a choice that feels grounded and true to you? Dr. Sarah and I had such a fascinating conversation around this question, and I love the neurobiological lens that she applied to dating situations. She also offers some practical tips for feeling calm and present on a date that are pure gold. 
I hope you'll find a nugget or two of wisdom from this conversation that you can apply today to your own life, especially if you are searching for love. Hello, Dr. Sarah. Thank you for saying yes to this conversation. Hello. Who can say no to you? (laughs) We always have such juicy conversations that I really look forward to this. I'm glad to be in this space with you today. By way of just kind of getting into it, we have a question that we ask on the Reimagining Love podcast. We ask it of all of our guest experts, and I am really excited to ask you this question. Are you ready for it? Mm, Okay. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I'm about to roll up my sleeves here. (laughs) Dr. Sarah, what is a growing edge that you are currently working on in one of your important relationships? And what has it been teaching you? Oh, that's a good one. Can I pick me? Like the relationship with this person that I know as Sarah? I would love that. So I think the growing edge for me is every now and again, or actually every day, I have to look into myself and see who am I in this world and really act with congruency and see what is the essence. I call it essence because I feel like with when you dust off all the noise and everything, what is left there that really makes this person me? So I would say that I every day I need to really make sure to establish a relationship with this you know, mind and body and, and act with congruency with those um, moral values and essence that I know that make me me, oh. or I would like them to make me me. Yeah. It's so beautiful how you're saying it, the essence of you. You know, it's so wild and you and I did not plan for this, but I had a thought about two hours ago. I thought, what if one of my podcast guests flips the script and asks me this question. I thought, how would I answer this question today? And do you know what I would have said? Is I would have said, it's about my relationship with me. It's so wild. And for me, and I'm curious kind of what, like the specific sort of essence you're tapping into about you. But for me right now, you know, being in this very beginning stages of developing this podcast, I am aware of how much vulnerability and self-critique, I have the opportunity to have that come up in me as I like ease my way into this new role of podcast host, you know? And so I am every day before every recording, like just trying to come back to something deep and grounded and essential, as you say, essential within me, like someplace where I can kind of hook in, right? Because the role is new, but I'm not new to me. I have had to be very, very intentional about how do I feel my way into something deep within myself because all the novelty and all of the new technology and new systems and new relationships can provoke some anxiety in me and and I feel sometimes ungrounded. So I love that you are inviting me to feel permission that like a really important relationship right now is between me and me and that you're inviting listeners, you know, as they sit with this question that sometimes that primary relationship is just you with you. That's what I mean by essence and kind of congruency in showing up in different roles. All of us fulfill different roles in life, right? So I think that's one of the most important things that who am I in this moment in time in this relationship with this other person? 
So that's one. The other thing is, I would actually say one of your fortes, as much as I know you, is to go to that vulnerable place and create that space for other people. So it's really nice to kind of turn the lens, so to speak, to yourself and allow that for yourself as well, because I think that's what you do beautifully always in everything you do. Thank you. Thank you. These roles, like I'm thinking about the role of some of my main roles, like mother and wife and therapist and now podcast host. I think what's so tricky is I know for me, I can get kind of taken away about like the mother I think I should be, the podcast host I think I should be, right? Like I can kind of have these stories that start to spin about the right way, the good way, the best way to be in this role. And that I know is a recipe for inauthenticity, right? Because then I'm not connected to my vulnerability, what I know to be true about myself, my essence. Does that land for you as well about that when we start to like move from a place of how I should be in this role, it takes us away from essence? That's actually really interesting. It does land with me. And if I may, I would rephrase it a little bit differently for, for me, the way that it comes up for me, right? So when you're talking about authenticity, uh, the other day I was actually having a conversation with one of my clients because she said, well, I'm connecting with my voice, an authentic voice. I said, yes, and I love it. But it reminds me of walking down a gallery of expressionist artists. So when an expressionist artist put things out there, it's open to interpretation and that's the beauty of it. But when you have another person in front of you, you're actually in a role that is supposed to serve you in one way or the other and the other person and the relationship between the two of you, there's an expectation said or unsaid. So I wonder how much of that also we tie into, yes, I'm expressing my authentic self, but also tying it with being present for what that dynamic needs at that moment in time from whose perspective. Mm. Well, that is so true. Right. That's so true. It's what, you know, Dr. Dan Siegel would call the MWE, the M-W-E, right? Like, yes, I'm me. There is some essence that's me, but also the me that comes forward, like in this moment with you, Sarah, it's not the me that will come forward when I'm having dinner with my husband tonight or sitting next to my daughter on the couch tonight, right? There is something essential that lives within me. And as you're saying, what comes forward, authentically forward, is shaped by the demands of the relationship, the demands of the context. Yeah, exactly. So this image, so the image is a gallery of impressionistic art. No, what kind of art? Expression is like, you know, I'm an expressive artist, like expressions artist. So I feel like I love that, but sometimes I don't get it the way that it was intended. Or maybe the artist really wants to see how many <laughs> different ways that it could be perceived. But uh -huh. while you're managing a relationship, I wouldn't risk it <laughs> that way. I want to know how this is perceived. Right. Like <laughs> uh-huh. Right. Well, and of course, as is the case with art as well, right? The way we receive the art is shaped through the lens of our own cultural locations and experiences and mood on any given day. My husband could say the same darn thing to me today and next Tuesday, and it might land different, the same touch might feel different in one context in a different context. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the way that I ground myself in those moments when you're talking about when you're having dinner with your husband versus talking to me here at this moment in time, I would say if we think about the meaning of this relationship, what is the meaning 
that you know we are making? What is the story that we are trying to create here? And what is the role of this dynamic right now? Then that becomes a guiding post. Or if you think about the golden rule, do to the others as you want to be done to you, and then kind of cross it over and replace it with platinum rule, that do to others the way that they want to be done to them, you know? <laughs> so I think that's also important. The platinum rule. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I officially, I mean, I'll have to see because I have another Sarah favorite thing that you say that I just actually said yesterday, which is you talk about that juicy space between nervous and excited that you call nervited. So I just talked yesterday about being nervited, but now I got to see, I mean, maybe my new favorite, Sarah, is the platinum rule because you're right. We grew up in the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is a whole lot of projection and not quite relational. So that's why you're saying, and also, by the way, there's a platinum rule which is ensure that you do unto others in the way that they want done to them. Yeah, because how many times you sit with couples and then they tell you, I've been telling him forever and he didn't land. Like, okay, but I was doing what was right. I was doing what I thought they would like, you know, the other partner. Mm -hmm. And then if you just slow down and listen, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that part, I would say, yeah. That part, right. But I know what's better for him. No, maybe actually you might not. <laughs> yeah. And then nervited, by the way, just to clarify here, one of my very good friends at Process Therapy Institute taught me that word. And then I heard that before in um, improv classes too. So I just brought it to the field of psychology <laughs> because wow. I felt like it's really a good way to kind of change the frame when you're mm-hmm. dealing with anxiety. And yeah, just wanted mm-hmm. to put it out there. Mm-hmm. That it has lineage. But in my heart, it will always be something that I heard verse from you. This is maybe a segue to our listener question. But I think so often when we are nervous, we start to attach a whole story. Oh my gosh, I'm nervous. I must not be prepared. It's going to go terribly. They're going to laugh at me. I'm going to be a fool. Right. And to remember that actually the feeling of nervous means it matters. It means you've got some skin in the game. Nervousness can bring us into presence. And oftentimes right next to that nervous is excitement. So we get to maybe also hold on to both, right? That nervous and excitement can really live in the same space at the same time. Absolutely. And you know, the anxiety curve that we show to our clients sometimes, it's really important for people to realize that being nervous or being excited or even having anxiety is actually a good thing. It shows one, you're not paralyzed. You can actually move. Uh, Paralyzed not by the disease kind of definition, but paralyzed meaning you're freezing in the situation. And I worked with so many leaders that, you know, they were so like, they would get stage fright. And some of them were prescribed for pranolol, like it's a beta blocker that reduces that kind of level of anxiety. But um, they did horribly on this stage if they took too much of it because they were like so flat, (laughs) like almost as if they're not human. And I was like, how about take that out and take Uh this piece of chocolate before you go? So your sugar level doesn't drop and just, you know, like it's some behavioral and breathing Uh exercises. I love when I go on podcasts or, you know, as a matter of education, right? Because when you say, well, are you anxious? Let me do something about it. No, I would Mm -hmm. say, are you anxious? Let me help you channel it the Mm. way that it will serve you. Beautiful. 
Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about our dear listener whose name is Margaret. Are you ready? Absolutely. So Margaret is writing in from Portland, Maine, and she has got a question. She writes... I am 30 years old and single. I have had a few long-term relationships, but none of them have resulted in marriage and a family, which I so strongly desire. I have been trying to build my relational self-awareness and notice my patterns. Most recently, I was seeing someone who was available, emotionally aware, handsome, and we shared similar interests and future goals. This person made sense logically, but unfortunately, my body retracted and constricted when I was around him. I got annoyed easily, picked apart his jokes and missteps in conversation, and didn't feel drawn to him. What I'm needing insight with is, is this anxiety or is this my intuition? Part of me thinks it was my intuition telling me we were a mismatch, but another part of me thinks it was avoidant attachment style and projection. I logically wanted to choose an available, healthy partner, but my body wasn't opening to him, so I ended it. Getting advice from family and friends that we weren't right for each other. If we're supposed to be more in our bodies and less in our heads, I probably should have listened to that recoil, right? Similarly, there is this rhetorical question. Do you want to do what makes sense or do you want to do what feels right? There is so much advice out there and so much of it contradicts itself. I often feel overwhelmed and unsure how to proceed. Listen to my head or my body. Choose love or listen to my body retracting. Feeling discouraged. Thanks. So, Sarah, before I hand you the first take, I want to just make sure that we frame, you know, I think that probably what you and I will do is talk about this feeling of recoil and constriction in her body. And in doing so, I want to just honor that, you know, Margaret made the choice to end this relationship, right? And so in our conversation, we will be kind of looking a bit in the rearview mirror and talking about that feeling and how one might work with that feeling. And so I don't want Margaret or anybody who has ended a relationship to feel like we're saying something about having made the wrong choice or the right choice. I think we're going to really try to find it, occupy a space that is far beyond right choice, wrong choice, and just really, really kind of tease apart some layers here. But I am aware that we're talking about a relationship that Margaret has made the choice to end. And I want to honor her choice while saying there is so much juice in this question because you know, you and I were saying before we started to tape, this is a common question that you get. And it's certainly a question that I get. Where would you like to begin with Margaret? First of all, I love that framing. 
and that made it so inclusive and non-judgmental because we can, as the quote-unquote kind of experts, we can tell people what to look for, what to do, what not to do. And in doing that, there might be things that Margaret finds out or other people who've been in this situation. And then they say, oh, darn it, I shouldn't have done that. So I hear you and I really appreciate that framing. The first thing that I would say is... Um, in the field of decision science, there's a piece that talks about it doesn't matter really what decision you make as much as how you deal with it and how you live with it. That is the first thing just to put the framing. Now let's talk about that recoiling feeling. In one of the lines here, Margaret writes, the person made sense logically, but unfortunately my body retracted. So we're talking about mind and body here, right? One of the things that I often tell people is your body is only to be trusted. Basically, your gut is to be trusted if it's polished. <laughs> so if you feel like your gut is polished, go ahead, listen to your body. And that's really amazing if you're really in tune with that voice of your body. If not, yes, I agree with you. It might be. I don't know the whole you know, context, but based on what you're describing here, it could be avoidant attachment style, especially as you're talking about annoyed easily, pulling apart the jokes. You know, these are the ones. But if you're really thinking about the mind, what makes sense is really case by case, really debatable. My sense might not be your sense and social cultural construction, political construction, all of that age. Life experiences go to that common sense that we're talking about or a personal sense. The other one is being right. Is this the right person or being right? Is this the right decision? It's also relative because we all evolve. You might marry the right person five years down the line. They're absolutely the wrong person because we evolve, right? So that would be that. But I wonder if we could offer something to actually ground people. When we are talking about mind and body, what to listen for, mm -hmm. how to listen for, and then hopefully they will get whatever that resonates with them and resonates with their sense, common sense, and they can take it away. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And what is your take on it, by the way? I think you're planting a number of places for us to explore. And I love, I mean, just, okay, so there's two things I want to bring us back to. One is the idea that the decision is less important than the process. I love that. And then this idea of, you know, the body, what the heck we do with the wisdom and the data of the body. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Bessel van der Kolk's best-selling book is called The Body Keeps the Score. So what we know for sure, what our decades of trauma science have taught us is that our bodies are communicating with us. I love what you are saying is that it communicates to us and we then have to work with the whisperings or the shoutings of the body. Rather than taking it as some capital T truth, we take it as, ah, what are you saying? And so I could imagine if we were sitting with Margaret, as you're kind of pointing us towards like sort of how to ground in the recoil, I would want us to really get to know the recoil. She uses that word, recoil, and she uses the word retract. I have a sense of what that feels like. Like I can, you know, I'm doing it with my body now, right? I'm kind of shifting my body in that way. But I would really want us to sit alongside her and have her really help us understand where does it live? What does it feel like? I mean, we might even want to give it a name. I certainly want to hear the story 
of the recoil, right? Because one hypothesis I would want us to have on the table is that the recoil is a a trauma-informed recoil, right? That the data from the body is closeness is not safe. And I don't care how handsome he is. And I don't care how emotionally available he is. And I don't care how much my friends and family want me to be with him. Closeness is unsafe. So this recoil, if it is pointing us towards an unhealed trauma, says so much more about Margaret and her story than this man per se. So should we get into the recoil first, do you think? Let's start with the recoil. For sure. For sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. So what recoil brings up for me is the work of Emily and Emily Nagoski in Burnout when they talk about the stress cycle. So when a person has that form of kind of recoil, contraction in the body, as if you're bracing yourself for a blow, you know, like a protecting yourself, as you mentioned, Alexandra, is a trauma response. I mean, trauma, you know, let's also qualify the word trauma because it's tossed around like a piece of candy that everybody talks about that really we don't really define. So trauma basically is something that the body or the mind experiences and is beyond the level of that person's coping. Trauma for me, it's something that could create trauma for me, might be very different for you. And uh, it's really interesting in sibling research, you can also see in the similar situation, whatever that happened, you look at them and you see that both of them walk away from the similar experience, the same experience, and uh, their trauma level or resilience Mm -hmm. level will be very different. So let's Mm -hmm. put that in the mix, right? Now, if we are in a situation and we are stressed out, stressed out meaning what? The way that the nervous system gives me an alarming sound that you are in danger or you're safe, to uh, Dr. Porges' point, right? Neuroceptions. If I'm sitting with that, it means that my nervous system is already agitated. It could be actually excitement. For some people, it's that nervited feeling they misinterpret it as danger. So that's another conversation to have, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're really sitting there, first of all, realizing that my body is agitated, as a response to that agitation, I'm recoiling. Some people don't recoil. Some people actually need to outwardly show their stress. They become louder. They become more animated. They become more aggressive, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? Just to get the stress out. They talk too much. They talk too fast, right? Mm-hmm. Some people recoil. And as Margaret here mentions, and I don't know what the experiences was there, Did she become quiet? Did she feel like, you know, she's just distancing herself gradually from this person that she was dating? So whatever that was happening, you called it recoil, right? Mm -hmm. In that moment, one of the basic things that you can do to differentiate between basic primal agitation of the body and the cognitive processing, which is more sophisticated level, is to create a flow for your body. If you're realizing that you are recoiling, look up and far. Create a flow, Hmm. right? Grab your glass of water if you are at a dating scenario having dinner or, you know, whatever. Chew your food slowly and create a flow of swallowing it and feeding your body. Take a glass of water, count to 10, and just drink it. Excuse yourself. Go to the bathroom so that your body sees I'm not stuck uh, because recoil also on the other side of it is stuck. Mm -hmm. And then come back, do it a couple of times, see, see if the scenario goes away, if your body actually feels more at ease with this person. 
So these are the things that, you know, practicality as well as kind of a little bit of a literacy around neurosciences that I wanted just to share. I think it's so, so valuable what you've offered because what you've taken us from is recoil equals you aren't right for me. And what you've taken us to is recoil is really important data and I will work with it. I will open up my circuit. I will work on flow And then I don't know. I don't see the whole staircase. Maybe nothing changes. Maybe I still say to this person, love and light, I'm going my way, you go your way. But I at least open up a potential new pathway that I can't even get to if all I do is, "Uh uh-oh, recoil, that's not romantic love, I got to go. You are inviting the possibility of working with one's body Dating is so anxiety-provoking. Falling in love is anxiety-provoking. Trying to figure out when and how and whether we commit to each other and how are you feeling and how am I feeling, it's so anxiety-provoking. So it makes so much sense that our bodies can really shift into that alarm state. And being in an alarmed state shifts our decision-making, It sort of limits our scope. And what you are offering us is really powerful neuroscience around working with the body, not to override it, not to gaslight it, not to manipulate it, but just to regulate it and then see what might happen from there. Absolutely. Great bringing it all together. It's so important for us not to misread those cues. One of the other things that stood out to me in this conversation, which ties back to, you know, my own research on emergent love and stuff. So it's really interesting because many people, when I ask them, well, how was your date? They said, well, I didn't quite feel it. You know, it feels like, you know, if that butterfly sensation, if that I really want to jump on you right now, you know, I really want to kiss you right now or touch you right now, if that eros kind of feeling is not there, then it's as if on the flip side, on the other side of it is you're not good for me. You know, it's like, I think going into the dating scenario, the context matters a lot. I often tell people that, you know, don't go out for meal because just pure bodily function, you're sitting there eating, all of the blood goes to your stomach. So what is left to your brain? So it's really important <laughs> and not to include the uh, drinking thing around dating, right? Yeah. So just create shared experiences. And I think, you know, it's really important. And also, I wonder, Margaret, if you ever felt this recorded feeling before, how did you feel it? What was going on around you? Check in to see if there are any resemblances of any cues from your environment that was replicated in this scenario. Yes, that's what I want to ask you about next or invite us to look at next because that question, my part of the training world, we call that question the remote block operation. Like when have you felt this before? What is similar about this? And one thing that I was really sitting with in this question is that I feel like she has this chorus of family and friends who are saying, well, Margaret, maybe this and maybe this and how about this and how about this? And the voices are so loud around her that I don't know how, you know, is she able to tap into herself? And if, you know, he's ticking all the boxes and people are saying like, you should like him, then what I imagine at risk of coming up in Margaret is pushback. If everyone's saying you should, for some of us, the mode we go into is hell freaking no, you're saying I should. Well, guess what? Now I'm not going to, you know, you were speaking to that feeling of like that stuckness. I wonder if part of Margaret's stuckness was that 
the world was saying you're X number of years old and he's a good man and he's so handsome and your parents like him. If all of that was subtly feeling to her like a trap and in that space of feeling trapped, her only power became the power of no. And I don't know if any of that was what was going on for her, but there's another kind of like subtle mapping that I wonder if it was happening is like at that kind of bigger system level. If the system is saying, Margaret, you should go this way. And she's got all of this advice and it's clear she's on her reading. She's naming relational self-awareness. She's naming attachment styles. You know, she is like clearly like doing her work. And I wonder if the louder those voices are getting around her, the more she wants to push back as a sense of sovereignty for a sense mm-hmm. of sovereignty. But tell me where, where do you go with that? Sure, well said, the voices in the head. Also, the, uh, another thing that came up for me is, Margaret, just that you know, if you really self-diagnose yourself as a person with avoidant attachment style, my friend, you are the person who has a tendency to be annoyed by other people. So, That's really good to know about yourself. And I can actually give you an example of how you can kind of deal with that. If you think of it this way, usually we talk about recoiling, right? We talk about contraction, recoiling, bracing yourself, right? So that's a sensation. After that, that whispers becomes a shout, becomes an emotion in you. So the emotions that I would love for people to track in themselves because there are zillion emotions and there's so much material, great material out there that might be actually overwhelming for people. Mm-hmm. So I just want you to track five emotional states in yourself. One is if you're annoyed. The other one is if you feel offended. The other one is you, if you feel hurt. The fourth one is feeling triggered, going from zero to 100 in a split of a second. The other one is being uncomfortable. So annoyed, uncomfortable, triggered, offended, and hurt. If you can track those in your body, it will be helpful because then you know how you show up. As you were reading what Margaret shared with us, Alexandra, some piece of these, I might be off, but this is just my observation, my, the feeling that I got, was at certain point in their interaction, I feel like Margaret lost respect for this person. Hmm. You know, when she was saying that I was uh, pulling apart the jokes, I'm just rephrasing. I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Or, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. So, yeah. so these one, uh, so this person is annoying me or this person, everybody else says this and I feel this. So these are the ones that come from, come up for me. Uh, you know? You've given us a lot. The idea of a loss of respect. I wonder if it was something about, about like that kind of early idealization, like perhaps she was so, so, so excited about this guy. He's handsome and he's charming and he's available. And he's, a, and so, and so she's thinking, this is my person. And then his humanity comes through, right? And then his, you know, she sees all of his rough spots and growing edges. And that work is really hard. Like, how do you go from idealization to a loss of respect? And can you move into something that is more, integrated and whole that she can see in him. She can hold his wonderful qualities and his growing edges because any partner she chooses is going to have wonderful qualities and growing edges. Any partner she chooses is going to provide her with ample opportunities to feel annoyed. That is part of commitment. Part of the work of loving somebody is like, okay, I'm annoyed by you. What am I going to do about it? 
you know, is it mine to metabolize? Is it mine to bring up? And so, yeah. So if there was a loss of respect, was it a loss of idealization that then she's got to kind of like process and be like, okay, so you are a full person, wonderful and imperfect. And when we choose any partner, we choose a set of challenges. And so I choose you. Or was it the loss of respect that really is like, listen, I'm doing neither of us a favor by building a life with you if I can't hold you in warm mm-hmm. regard. That's very true. And keep judging you every second of the time that we're together. Yeah. So there are certain things that come up for me here. One thing is I, you either fulfill that idealized vision that I had in mind, that I so badly want to find somebody, you know, shape a great life and you know all of that. And when that doesn't happen, so that was all, I go to nothing, which is huge loss and grief. And so the question that I would ask myself if I were Margaret was this, what is my blueprint when I was growing up? What was the model of relationship that was around me? You might be aware of it. You might not be aware of it. But I have all of my clients do that, especially the ones who are dating. So what was the blueprint? Was that the neighbor? Was that my aunt and uncle? Was that, you know, who was that? My parents? So that was the blueprint, you know, that you look for. How was this? How were their dynamics based on respect, compassion, you know, all of these that we know based on so many research that they are the foundations of the dyadic fundamentals. The other one is what is the reality that I'm assuming or I think I have the potential to create for myself? Because you might keep something in mind as an ideal, but you actually in your heart of heart, you don't believe that you deserve it or you can have it or it's even possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So after blueprint, you move on to the reality as you know about yourself and, you know, something that, you know, it's attainable for you. And the ideal, what is that ideal image that you have in your mind uh, that you built based on reading books, watching movies, again, people around you. And then look for gaps in between. A person from that blueprint, what is the growing edge for you to get from that blueprint to that ideal? So these are the groundwork before we even get to dating, right? So that's one. Mm-hmm. The other thing that comes to my mind is the way that people show up in their dates. If I'm so hungry, I never go to supermarket shopping <laughs> because I get all the rubbish <laughs> that I never need, never eat. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's the same exact thing with dating. We are only human. Mm-hmm. Am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I tired? Am I desperate? Am I too hopeful? Am I too optimistic? Again, going back to that essence that we talked about at the beginning, who am I? How am I going to show up in this date? Am I going to impress the other person or am I going to be present? Am I going to be putting my, you know, which face, which mask, which role I'm presenting of myself? So these are the ones that I think, you know, if we really have a check-in beforehand, it's like stretching before you hit the dance floor. Mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with that, to be Mm -hmm. honest, Mm -hmm. that in the way that people show up in a dating scenario. If you're tired, just apologize in a polite way and postpone. Right. Or tell the person, you know, I I really don't like this word, but. When people say, I'm tired, but let's meet. Mm -hmm. I know I'm hungry, but. Yeah, you're hungry, go take care of that first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it's interesting that you are you're picking up on some indicators here that you know Margaret has sort of self-diagnosed or wondered if she has an avoidant attachment. You know, it's one of the the things about being in this field for over two decades now is that I have watched attachment style research be something that's only, you know, within the ivory tower, only in the research lab to something that has become so much a part of our cultural conversation. And there's something very beautiful and encouraging about all of the relationship tools that people have at their disposal now in a way that 20 years ago we didn't, and certainly longer ago than that, we didn't. The thing I don't want Margaret to do is stick an avoidant attachment style label on her head and doom herself to a series of unhealthy relationships. Because the thing that the attachment research has shown, the couples-based attachment research has shown, is that when she is in an intimate partnership and she can turn towards her partner and share her concerns and work with a partner on some of the ways in which she is at risk of shutting down, avoiding, pulling back, then the power of the relationship can offer healing, right? That then being, this is what the whole heart of emotion-focused therapy has found. And emotion-focused therapy is, a you know, people's attachment styles change in the context of a happy and healthy and thriving intimate partnership. But it's not just emotion-focused therapy because even like cognitive behavioral couples therapists have found that their clients' attachment styles can change in the process of therapy. So relationships hold the power to heal us and shift us. And so I want Margaret to take into her next relationship that if and when some of these triggers, for lack of a better word, happen again, she's getting irritable, she's getting critiquey, she's pulling back that might she imagine a world where she invites her partner in and they can address some of this together. She doesn't have to, and she in fact can't figure this out on her own because Margaret brings her own stuff in and whoever Margaret partners with brings their stuff in. I will want Margaret to be with somebody where she doesn't feel like she has to figure this out all on her own. And she might've been afraid to say to her partner, like, I'm tensing up. I'm feeling critical. She might've been afraid of hurting him. She might have had the experience in her family of origin that nobody's there to help her with her pain anyway. So what's the point of bringing it up? But what I really want to invite Margaret into is that there's a different way for her to be relationally, that she can start to share. This data lives inside of her, but the relationship holds the power to be with it and holds the potential then to shift it and change it so that she gets to have a different experience. Yeah, that's very true. And it's very interesting. You're talking about, Margaret, you're talking about, I was looking for a safe and available partner uh, and I found one. So it's really interesting. You think that that other person was securely attached, I'm assuming. And that's also debatable because different people bring different things out of us. And, you know, we show up differently with different people. So that's another thing. But I'm really proud of you at 30 years of age, really. You have so much awareness that I didn't have at that age. And as you mentioned, Alexandra, so yes, we studied this. We spent our life, you know, two decades of our mm -hmm. lives with clients and, you know, books and research and everything to get here. And the fact that she could actually get her hand on solid and reliable information that piece of, you know, relational self-awareness, these are all amazing work that mm -hmm. you're doing. Um, I have no doubt that you can cultivate the relationship that you desire and deserve. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, 
Dr. Sarah, it has been a treat to be with you. And I, Margaret, thank you so much for your question. And listeners, I hope that they, I know, I have every confidence that there are pieces of Margaret's story that will resonate for you and hopefully pieces of our conversation that will resonate for you. And love is not ever going to be simple, but we can bring thoughtfulness and tools to it. And Sarah, you are always so hard at work on the things that you are doing here in the U.S. and around the world. Your work has such a global reach. And so I know that people are going to want to connect with you and and keep learning about what you're up to. So tell us a bit about what you're up to and how people can learn more. Oh, thank you for that. I always say my mission in life is to create peace, one relationship at a time. So that fuels my motivation for this hard work. Two things that are very exciting. I'm all over the web, Facebook and Instagram. And, you know, like my website is just my name, just saranasserzadeh.com. And I pop up. I restarted my blog. Hopefully you find something useful there. But two projects that I'm excited about is uh, I'm writing a book about the emergent love, which was based on more than 10 years of my research. And I'm basically going to flip the love on its head and rescue the world from the heartbreaks to give people a break for their heart, basically. Hopefully. We'll see about that. (laughs) So that's that. Next year sometime the book will come out, hopefully. And then the other one is the Relationship Panoramic Inventory, which is a 360-degree review of a coupledom. It has more than 12 validated scales. We assess for thinking style compatibility, compassion, respect, shared vision, physical attraction, all that that when Margaret is talking about senses, hopefully people actually rely on solid research so that mm-hmm. they can really assess whether their coupledom is working or not and if there are any cracks that they have to attend to before they become chasms. Beautiful. Beautiful. What a valuable offering that is. And I'm so excited about your book. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. It went like a minute. It was fantastic. It's always great to be with you. Oh, likewise. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Sarah, for joining me on Reimagining Love and for bringing so much wisdom to this listener question. Listeners, you can check out the show notes to visit Dr. Sarah's website where you can learn more about the fascinating projects that she's working on. I hope that you found some helpful takeaways about dating and attraction. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time here on Reimagining Love. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.